We're one week out before we celebrate the resurrection together on Easter Sunday. And so uh, I want to take our attention back to just a few days before the crucifixion of Christ as appropriate preparation for that. And I invite you to take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Matthew 26. So it'll be in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. There is no greater subject to study than the subject of our Lord. There's no greater topic to reflect upon than Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. He is the revelation of God. And as believers, we confess that he is so many things to us. He is our maker. He's our master. He is our savior. He's our friend. He's our comforter. He is our helper. He is our righteousness. He is our atonement. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the prophet who explains God to us. He is the king who reigns in glory, and he's the high priest who not only sacrificed himself, but makes intercession, giving us access to the Father and helping us amid our temptations. Jesus is our older brother, and as Paul would say, he is in fact our life. And so when you encounter Jesus in the gospel records, they have a flow, and the flow is to get us to the cross. That's the focal point of each rider is all of the preparation of Jesus getting to the cross. And then everything always slows down when you get to the cross. It's as if you go into a time warp, three years compressed into a few chapters, and then one week over several pages. Today, what we're going to see on the cusp of the cross of Christ is a story that highlights, uh, in particular, one of Jesus' followers here in Matthew, an unnamed woman. And from the other gospel writers, this is Mary. And Mary here is going to express her devotion to Jesus Christ. She's going to express her love for Jesus. Now, Matthew is a writer. And he's compiling a gospel account. And a gospel account is not uh, merely a, a journalist recording the events with the time stamps of everything that happened. There's a purpose and an intention to how these things are arranged. And so Matthew has selected this material about the woman, and he has sandwiched this between two other perspectives, two other personas. This woman who loves Jesus so much is going to be in sharp relief to those who love themselves. Those who love themselves. It's much like when you see the picture of a diamond. It's, it's not usually displayed on a glass background. It's displayed on something black. So you, you see it stand out. And so Matthew is taking this story that took place with Mary. And he's setting it in contrast. In sharp relief to two dark events that happened in relationship to it. They didn't happen in order like this. It's not chronological, but it's to display the focal point of Mary's love in sharp relief. This is a love that, as we'll see, captures the commendation of our Lord. Jesus alone brings sinners into relationship with God. Jesus alone is what secures your favor with God. And yet here we see a woman who brings him pleasure and delight. A woman who he commends. 
Understanding that her reconciliation to God came on the basis of grace alone. And yet now as she expresses worship back to him in love by faith, Christ is pleased. She gains the approval of our Lord. Let's read our text together this morning. Matthew chapter 26 beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, flashback, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. Then, immediately after, one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me? What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Matthew begins chapter 26, and he's touching on a new section in his gospel record. We're just kind of parachuting, as it were, right in here. We haven't been walking through this account for very long. But there have been five turning points in the gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, or excuse me, where Matthew records, when Jesus had finished saying these things. That transition happens in chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 19, and now here in 27, 6, and it's marking a shift in the narrative. What's the instruction that Jesus has just finished? Well, it's the Olivet Discourse. So it's where they have that discussion about how beautiful the temple is, how magnificent it is, and the fact that at some point one of these stones is not going to be left on the other. And that incites this question, hey, Jesus, when are you coming back? And what are the signs of the end of the age? And so Jesus begins to talk about how the temple will be destroyed. He begins to talk about his imminent return and what will happen in those times. And so he said to his disciples after he finished talking about what we know as the Olivet Discourse, that very long sermon recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he turns to the disciples and he says in verse 2, you know that two days after the Passover is coming. So if we go in our chronology of accounts, uh, most likely this is Wednesday night with Jesus, Jesus being crucified on Friday. And he says that what's going to happen in two days at Passover is the Son of Man, that's me, will be delivered up 
to be crucified. Literally, I will be handed over. We're going to look at this particular truth in great detail on Friday night about how Jesus was handed over. How he was handed over, passed from one earthly power to the next, and it ultimately is he was handed over by his father to be crucified. The sovereign hand of God orchestrating every event, and even the exact moment of the crucifixion, so that Jesus might be our Passover lamb. You understand this? Jesus is saying, in, in two days, I'm going to be handed over. In two days, I'm going to be uh, sacrificed, crucified on Passover. And yet, what was man's timetable? Well, verse 3, we read, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. So you have uh, the religious leaders there. You have the wealthy uh, lay people there. And they're gathering in uh, the palace, the courtyard of Caiaphas. And they're plotting together to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And when do they want to kill him? Verse 4, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So what we don't want to do is crucify him during Passover. Uh, that would be a politically bad move as we reason our way through this because the city is swelled full of people and so we would actually like to wait. So these guys have been scheming for years to crucify Jesus and have been unable to do it. Now they would like to do it and they feel like they can't do it because it's Passover. And yet lo and behold, God's appointed time is for Jesus to be crucified on Passover and so we know he will. The religious leaders have had it. This point when they meet in verse 3, this is not the first time they've met. They've met before. They've met before. They've met before. But at this point, things have reached a fever pitch and it's the last straw. And what kind of crescendoed things here at the last minute was the resurrection of Lazarus. So that's just a few days in the rearview mirror. It was just a few days prior to this that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And when that happened, according to John 11.45, many people began to believe in Jesus because Lazarus was raised. Many people began to believe in Jesus. And word got back to the Pharisees. What was the word? Well, Jesus raised Lazarus and now people are beginning to believe him. And so they convened a council and essentially, if you were to paraphrase it, they said, what in the world are we going to do? What are we going to do? If we don't get this guy out of here, then we're going to lose our place before the people and we're going to lose our place before Rome because everyone is starting to believe that he's actually the Messiah. And so in their hearts, they are saying, we cannot wait. We must find a way. Now, you have hated someone in your life. Perhaps you hate someone right now. A sin that we're all guilty of. But I would say, even on your worst day of hating someone, even if you felt for a second, oh, why I oughta, you probably did not scheme to kill them. You probably didn't actually begin to plan out how it was that you were going to take their life. This hatred for Jesus is so intense that they're not merely in their hearts thinking, man, I would love to knock the guy off or I hope something happens bad to him. They're beginning to, in their minds, by stealth, concoct a plan and scheme. How can we bring an end 
to his life. Why did these people hate Jesus? He raised a guy from the dead. You hate people for raising people from the dead? The reason why they hated him was because his righteousness threatened them. See, the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his popularity among the people was a threat to what these leaders wanted. See, the unredeemed heart has no stomach for true righteousness. It is uncomfortable and it is threatening. And it's because when Jesus comes, he begins to stand in the way of you and your sin. See, for the believer, that is a tremendous comfort. Is that not a comfort to you that Jesus stands between you and your sin? He stands between the penalty of your sin. He stands between the power of your sin and the settled pleasure with your sin. Jesus gets in the way of your sin. But for these men, they hate that. That's a source of frustration because what they're hanging on to in their self-love, the influence over the people, the greed and the desires that they have, Jesus is a threat to that, and they want nothing to stand in the way of them and their sin. See, they are absolutely committed. They're committed to their self-love. They're committed to their pride. They're committed to preeminence. And so they're willing to kill God in order to protect that idol that they love so much. That's why they had to kill Jesus. He got in the way of the object that they worshipped, that they were enslaved to, that they were bowing down to, that they were unable to let go of. So their plan is to wait. They don't want to do it during Passover, according to verse 5. And of course, in the sovereign hand of God, Jesus will be crucified as the Passover lamb, contrary to what they desire. And so Matthew is, is recording this because in the chronology, you have the Olivet Discourse, that sermon about what's going to happen to the temple. Then after that was when uh, the chief priests and the people were gathered in the palace and they were plotting. And now Matthew does a flashback in verse 6. And he says, now when Jesus was at Bethany, and you say, that doesn't sound like a flashback. John records the timing. And John records that this happened Saturday night. So we're midweek right now, probably Wednesday night. This event happened, according to John's gospel in John chapter 12, on the previous Saturday night. So this was right before the triumphal entry, what we know as Palm Sunday, Sunday morning where Jesus came in. This is what was happening the evening before. Why would Matthew break the chronology? Why would he group it? Well, he wants to show now in sharp relief, to the religious leader's committed self-worship is going to be Mary's committed worship to Christ. By nature as humans, we are committed in our worship. We are devoted to it. In this life, you can only be consumed and mastered by one ultimate allegiance, and it is either God or self. Over and over, the scripture describes this in various ways, living for this world or living for the world that is to come. Loving this world and the things of the world or loving the Father. Loving God or loving money. Loving pleasure or loving others. Loving Christ or loving self. 
Over and over and over, the scripture bifurcates those two and puts them at polar opposites as mutually exclusive. Not that as a believer you wouldn't struggle in the faithfulness of your love, but that ultimately you will have one allegiance and those are mutually exclusive. And so Jesus is in Bethany right now. Now Bethany was a nice spot for him to land. So when you think about Bethany, it's referred to five times in the Gospels. It was a relaxing place for him to go. And it was in the suburbs. So it's outside of the city of Jerusalem. It's a quiet little village, a quaint little hamlet, if you will. And he's in this home, and he's in the home of Simon the leper. Now, Simon can't still be a leper or else Jesus and everyone else couldn't go in his home. He couldn't enter the home of a leper because they were ceremonially unclean. Uh, so this guy was formerly a leper, and yet the, the title just stuck with him. And you think, man, that is unfortunate, right? Well, the issue is Simon was a super common name uh, in the New Testament. Kind of like if your name was John today, perhaps, it's a very common name. And so you'd say, well, there's so many Johns, it's hard to distinguish. So that's Hepatitis John. Um, that'd be an unpleasant name to have as the way that you're distinguished from the other Johns, but they didn't have lost names. And so uh, he gets referred to by his disease. He gets referred to by the disease that he formerly had. Simon would have been thrilled to host Jesus, right? Leprosy meant you, your life was over. You would be living as though dying, be ostracized, you'd be separated from your community, you'd have really no source of income, uh, no one would touch you anymore. So even human embrace is something that would be far from your grasp. Not only that, you wouldn't be able to go to church because you were unclean and there was no way to cleanse yourself so long as you had it. There was no human cure for it. And so you were getting the idea of, of uh, really a terminal disease. Uh, that was what you had received and uh, there was no treatment option for it. And it wasn't the kind of terminal disease where you'd be surrounded by all of your friends and family members while you would suffer in your home. You'd be sent away and separated. And so Simon now is, is healed from his leprosy. Right? When Jesus does a healing miracle, it's not that somebody had a leg ache and now their leg feels better. He did somebody who was, was visibly struck with the disease that was incurable and not the whole thing is gone instantly and completely. We find from the other gospel accounts that Simon has a house full right now. So he's got the disciples. All the disciples are there. Mary is there. Martha is there. Lazarus is there. Simon is there. So what I want you to think about here is, uh, this is uh, for us the equivalent. It'd be the Lord's Day evening, right? So this is Saturday night. The Sabbath observance is over. You're enjoying a meal. You unbutton your shirt collar, you're around friends, you're, you're lounging. This is uh, the relief of, of um, the encouragement that comes from fellowship with close relationships. Now the meal would have been taken together near the ground. And so in the text it says uh, that Jesus was reclining at the table at the end of verse 7. So children, some of you uh, might struggle sitting upright in your chair at the table and not putting your elbows on the table while you're eating. 
If you were growing up in, in the first century, you would actually just eat on the floor. So you could sit on a mat, no chairs, you could lay on a pillow. You picture kind of the coffee table in your living room. Everyone is just kind of hanging out around the coffee table, either lying back or sitting on a mat, and that is where you would eat. The Italian picture of the Last Supper is totally ridiculous of Jesus at that long table with all of the disciples. It's not how it happened at all. They're reclining around the table on the ground. And in the midst of the meal, verse 7, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, Matthew doesn't even mention her name. She's a nameless woman to Matthew. Because of John, we know it is Mary. But this would have been a breathtaking moment. So even in the first century, this was not uh, typical party behavior. This is something that would have been shocking to everyone. She came bringing an alabaster flask. An alabaster flask is just a container. It doesn't really mean anything. Just think a mason jar, right? It was a plaster of Paris. It was a way of, of holding what the contents were on the inside. Matthew just says that it is very expensive ointment. John says that it was pure nard. Nard oil. It's kind of an interesting name. Nard is, is just a plant. Uh, it's also known as spike nard or musk root. And it's oil that's extracted from a root. And the reason why it was so expensive was it came from the Himalayas, uh, the mountains in China and India. And so back then, things from the Himalayas were very expensive, right? We go to the store and we get chips and we get the kind that have Himalayan salt. It just sounds so exotic that the salt came from the, from the very Himalayan mountains. Um, this oil had to come from the Himalayas. So that was difficult to get all the way to Palestine. And that was what made it expensive. Those of you who are curious, it is not expensive today. So you could go home after church and you could order yourself a 30 milliliter holy anointing nard oil bottle for the reasonable price of $20 from the Judaica web store. So uh, it's still available today. It's just not quite as expensive. It comes in two other varieties, Guardian Angel and At Peace. So... You can get nard oil if you really desire. But this was 300 denarii worth of oil, and that was a year's wages for a laborer. One year's wages in one little bottle. In Oregon, that's a job that would probably pay forty-five dollars to $50,000 a year if you just think buying power. Text says she, she brings the bottle, and in order to get it open, she would have broken it, so she uses all of it. It's, it's not the essential oil that has the little eyedropper, and you just put four drops on Jesus. You break the alabaster jar, and when you do that, all of the contents come out. Likely, she had gotten this as a family heirloom, something that was passed down through the generations. Uncommon for us, it's difficult to even fathom because we don't have many things that you could hold in your hand and say, here's a year's wages, and I'm just going to stick it in my pocket and, and pull it out. According to Mark's record, she, she pours it out and anoints it while he's reclining there on the floor. She anoints his head and she anoints his feet. And Jesus certainly is the anointed one. 
That's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means. It means the anointed one. He's anointed as the prophet and the priest and the king, but but he's not going to be anointed by essentially a no-name Galilean woman in that role. That's not what this is. This is an anointing for his death. It's preparation for his death. If you want to imagine what this felt like, I was trying to think of an equivalent, and it's hard to imagine for us. It would have been pretty shocking. I was reading there was a, a winemaker in Australia named Max Schubert who began producing wine in 1951 and became very, very good at it. And so his wines and the wines of that estate are very high-dollar wines. And in his first year of producing this in 1951, he made two to three barrels. And so now if you have a bottle from one of those barrels, it's worth $50,000. And uh, they say the wine wasn't even that great that year. You probably wouldn't want to drink it, but it'd be cool to have on the shelf, right? Then you could show all your friends, I have this Max Schubert wine from 1951. And so it's like you're sitting in the room, you're having dinner, And all of a sudden, someone walks over. There's no fanfare. There's no discussion. They grab the $50,000 bottle of wine. They uncork it, and they start pouring it out. They don't even mention why they're doing it. They just do it. Just like that, it's gone. It's done. All of the value is immediately spent, and there's no way to recover it. So Mary does that. Verse 8, the disciples see it and they became indignant. They became indignant. They got upset. This isn't just being annoyed. The the idea in the text is that they, they became outraged. They got angry about it. Uh, disgust would be a good word to try to translate the, the sense of what was happening in the room. According to John chapter 12, verse 5, Judas, the one who kept the books, who kept the money, introduced this idea into the room where he said, look, this could have been sold for a large sum of money and given to the poor. Judas obviously didn't care about the poor. They just, they had a common purse and he would pull from that, right? So the the greedy guy wants to have the control of the contents and says everyone should share it. So they would go out. And uh, someone would say, hey, we want to contribute to the Lord's work. And among the disciples, you just say, hey, you just bring in whatever the Lord receives as a contribution for the work. We're going to put it all in one pot, and then we're going to share it as we go to distribute it elsewhere as, as needs come up. I was thinking about, you know, in college, there was four of us guys, and we tried splitting the grocery bill for the first few months all together. And then you find, well, not everybody eats the same. Right? So for the, the guy that eats like a bird, it's kind of a bad deal. And for the guy that overeats, it's a good deal because you're all sharing the common purse for the grocery bill. Well, here they had a common purse. So all of the disciples would contribute as they were receiving those gifts and offerings. Judas was the one that was in charge of it. He never cared about the poor. Rather, he was a pilferer. So he would skim money off the top. He would extort money from that which had been given to the Lord for himself. Well, it began to get pretty, pretty raw in the room. In fact, Mark says in his account that, that they began scolding her. Scolding her. These are the disciples. Multiple people, ongoing in duration. What, 
what you might think of as a, a mild form of verbal abuse. <sighs> Why'd you do that? What? You, you broke it and now there's no going back. What, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind when you did that? And in the utilitarian mindset, you could make the case, hey, that could have been two years of rent for a family that's homeless right now. That could have fed a handful of families for the next year. See, all Judas had to do was set the tone and everyone else follows. There's this kind of immediate reaction on the part of the disciples. They're all jumping to a conclusion. They're all immediately getting incensed. And it seems so obvious to them, so simple. One bottle of nard could be used a variety of ways. You used it on one guy and the smell's going to go away in a couple days. Or we could have used it for a lot of people for a long period of time. Simple value system. Right? We understand value system equations. Of some people that think, boy, that's a ridiculous expenditure to, to go to college. I can't believe you'd spend all that money to go to college. And someone else says, well, I can't believe you'd spend all that money on a vacation. That seems ridiculous. And we have our value judgments of things that we think are good to spend money on and not good to spend money on. And, and there's kind of the value assessments that we all know. But that's not what's happening here. It's not simply a, a disagreement over a preference on the best way to spend money. Because Jesus, in verse 10, makes it a moral issue. And aware of this, the text says, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? Jesus being aware of this. It seemed to indicate from Matthew's account here that, that they didn't have this conversation with her in front of Jesus. Notice how often that happens in the gospel accounts. Some conversation takes place offline, from Jesus. I wonder why that is. I wonder why we're going to argue about who's best in the kingdom, not in front of the Lord. So they're scolding her. Either Jesus got up to leave for a minute and they began scolding her, or uh, perhaps he was in the other room, or she got up to go in the other room and they followed her. We don't know, but, but Jesus became aware. He could, he could tell here by by what was happening and the dynamics in the room, that she had been being scolded. And he looks at them and he says, why? Many times people don't like the why question. It's a very good question. Why did you say that? Why did you do that? Why didn't you do that? Why immediately takes us from simply the act to what's going on in the heart? What was the motivation? I can't tell you how many times somebody's asked me the why question, and I think, did I have to get back to you? Not immediately obvious. I can affirm the fact that I did just do it, but why did I do it? That's going to take a little bit of time to figure out. I'm going to need to go before the Lord. I'm going to need a little reflection time to understand what was it that was driving that interaction? See, if it was merely a value system measurement of a genuine belief that, that we could better use some resources, Jesus would not be asking them the question and condemning them in this way. He's calling them to account of their actions because he knows what's going on in the heart. 
See, Jesus sees the motives of the disciples. And so what he's after, what he's asking when he says that question, why do you trouble this woman? He sees indignation. He sees where that's originating. Think about it like this. If, if Jesus did not correct the disciples, he just let everything play out. What would the conversation have been among the disciples when they left Simon's house? It would have been something roughly along these lines. <laughs> Could you believe what she did tonight? No, I thought that was ridiculous. I can't believe that. Yeah, that was such a bad call. You know what? I would never do something like that. See, the source of their indignation is an opportunity for their flesh to exalt themselves over her. Does this not sound eerily familiar? Lord, thank you that I'm not like other men. See, it feeds the flesh to feel that you are right vis-a-vis other people. Feeds the flesh to feel superior. Feeds the flesh to feel that your judgments are better, your assessments are better, your theology is better, your decisions are better. And so the disciples here are, are being challenged by Jesus, not simply because they misunderstood the value, but because in their hearts they are looking down on what Mary has done. That's why they're indignant. That's why they're scolding her. His text would be less painful if it was the religious leaders that were mistreating Mary. So we could say, yeah, those guys are just unbelievers. They're just hardened. But he's talking about the disciples. He's talking about men who love Christ. People who love one another, people who've already been forgiven by Jesus, true believers who are displaying in the moment self-righteous attitudes. A pride masked by good deeds. I'm sure it sounded spiritual. They would have said, you know what, we're just, we're just so concerned about the work of the Lord and we're concerned about Mary's stewardship right now. It's a stewardship issue. Jesus says, it's her money. What's it to you? By her own master, she stands or falls, not by your assessment. And so Jesus makes a moral judgment now about what Mary has done. And he says, verse 10, she has done a beautiful thing to me. What she did was good. What she did was beautiful. What's the disciples' assessment? If you gave them all a quiz, so we're going to pass out the quiz right before Jesus corrects them. Hey, rank everyone's spirituality in the room. Oh, that's easy. Mary's on the bottom. She has a stewardship problem. I'm somewhere near the top. Maybe I won't put myself first because that would be prideful. I'll be second. And so Jesus takes what in Matthew's account is a no-name woman and he flips that upside down and he just says, Mary expressed love to me here in this room in a way that no one else has. Mary's not at the bottom Mary's at the top. He sees her heart. He sees her love. He sees how willing and extravagant it is. He sees that she came with gratitude and humility to express love back to Christ, saying, I just want to give whatever I can to him. 
Jesus means more to me than anything on earth. You can imagine in her mind, grandma's nard oil. Who cares? I've only got Jesus for a few more days. Easy decision. I want to give him the very best I could possibly offer. See, Mary loves Jesus. She sees that he has known every sin that she'll ever commit and said, I'll free you from that penalty forever. And so for her, it's a high privilege to come and please the one who bought her. Jesus says what she did was good. It was beautiful. If you're one of the disciples, you're, you're very used to the cadence of how your interaction with Jesus goes. Jesus usually makes a statement that it should be relatively easy to understand. And then he breaks it down into bite-sized chunks so that you're able to actually understand it. That's the typical flow of how things go with the disciples. So he makes this statement, what she has done is a good thing. And now he needs to explain it. He needs to break it down as to why that's the case. Verse 11, you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Jesus takes generosity towards his people very seriously. In fact, if you remember when he executes the judgment and he's separating the sheep and the goats, and they say, why are we getting separated? He's going to use how people related to the poor that belong to him as one of the distinguishing criterias of those who truly knew him. So it's not that Jesus does not care about the church caring for those who are impoverished among us. His point is, next week the poor are still going to be here, but I'm not. Next week, you want to sell something and give it to the poor? Go for it. They'll still be here. I, however, will not. And so Mary chose the better option. Mary was able to see something that apparently everyone else in the room missed, namely what mattered most in that moment. And so how? How did, how did Mary understand this? How did everyone else seem to miss it? How is it that Mary is being commended by the Lord and everyone else is scolding her? Remember, Jesus had been talking about his death recently in plain language. In fact, he just said in Matthew 17, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Matthew chapter 20, he said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. Now, Jesus has been talking plainly about his death. He's been speaking openly for the last season. Why is it that Mary gets it and the disciples miss the moment? Well, that has to do with the way in which they're listening to the master. See, when Peter heard Jesus say, I'm going to be crucified, Peter said, you need to shut your mouth right now. That is not happening. And he sharply rebuked Jesus. So disrespectfully that Jesus had to come back and rebuke him for rebuking him. What's Mary's disposition when Jesus speaks? Keep your finger in Matthew 26 and flip over to Luke chapter 10. And I want to show you why Mary has this insight. 
Why is it that Mary sees so clearly? Why does she discern things that the disciples are missing? Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Again, we encounter Jesus in a house, Jesus with friends, Jesus with Martha and Mary. Verse 38, now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home and she had a sister called same Mary, who did what? She sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. She sat enthralled. She sat mesmerized, hanging on every word that he was sharing. Drinking it in, thinking about it, mulling it over, believing it, longing for more of it, like, like every last drop, she could not handle losing one. What's Martha doing? Well, Martha's busy serving, verse 40. She was distracted with much serving. So she's, she's distracted while Jesus is speaking. She's distracted when it comes to her interaction with truth. Martha goes up to Jesus and says, Lord, do you not care right now? My sister has left me to serve alone. Tell her then to help me. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you are troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So we have in Luke chapter 10, who's getting highlighted and commended? Mary. For what? Her incredible righteousness? No. For coming to the master in humility. And taking in his word in an undistracted way, unlike her sister who is hearing it and it's kind of important, but she has a lot of other things on her mind that are important to do. Mary is sitting at the feet of Christ. Go back to Matthew chapter 26. And what do we find in verse 13? Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she, Mary, has done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus is again commending Mary. See, Mary is hearing the same message as everyone else. And yet the way that she's listening intently to the Savior is causing her to discern things that others around her are missing. You want to talk about being ashamed. What do you think went through the minds of all of the disciples the moment Jesus said this in verse 13. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. I mean, they were, they were just freshly debating. Who's going to have the best seat in the kingdom, the closest to Jesus? Who deserves the most honor? I think I deserve the most honor. No, I think I deserve the most honor. And then the other 10 here. What? We can't believe that you guys are talking about who deserves the most honor. And then right there, they're scolding this woman and Jesus says, actually, she's going to get great honor. I mean, how do you like that? That was the thing that they wanted so desperately. And she's going to be talked about globally right now, 2,000 years and counting as a, as a testimony. She's commended in the Lord. Assuming the competitive nature of the disciples, I'm sure that had to smart a little bit. That they were just rebuking the one who Jesus said actually should be commended. 
Jesus honors Mary. Why did the disciples come up short here? And I've been mulling this one over all week. It is perplexing. But if you just stop for a second and think about it, the disciples do love Jesus Christ. They left, they left their businesses for Christ. They left their families for Christ. They've suffered reproach for Christ. They've lost comfort. They believe that he's the Messiah. Peter's already confessed that. When all the crowds left because they couldn't stomach the words of Christ, Peter said, we're not going anywhere because we have nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. How did Mary get the inside track? Why would Jesus draw attention to her deeds vis-a-vis -vis theirs? I think it's appropriate to ponder for a minute. If Jesus is going to commend Mary, then we should, we should ponder for just a minute. What is it that he's seen? What is it there that pleases him? How do I get more of what she had incorporated in my life? Because I want to love the Savior the way she loves the Savior. I want to know him the way she knows him. Wasn't merely the privilege. Mary didn't get as much time with Jesus as the disciples. She wasn't personally discipled at the same level. She didn't travel from town to town with him. She hadn't heard as many of his pre uh, sermons preached. She wasn't one of the 12. What brought her to this place? Well, see, she understood Christ's love for her and her need for that love. And she didn't presume upon it. And so when she looked to Christ, it wasn't, yeah, 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 I know he's my savior. It was, he is my savior and I have no other. He's my one and only. And when he speaks, I, I can't help but open my ear. I'm inclined to submit to what I hear. She was soft to the truth. See, she understood Jesus by faith. She was filled with love for Christ. Where did that come from? 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. And friends, Mary understood Christ's love for her at a profound level. She meditated upon it. It captivated her heart that God would stoop so low in his mercy and grace. To the one who has been forgiven much, loves much. That doesn't mean that some have been forgiven a lot and others have not been forgiven a lot. The idea is those, uh, anyone who's been forgiven has been forgiven a lot. It's those who understand and appreciate and recognize all that they have been forgiven by Christ. What do we glean from this commendation? Just jotted down a couple of notes here as you think about this with me. This expression of love was not done under compulsion. This was not done under compulsion. Mary didn't give this because she felt obligated. No one guilted her into doing this. There was no fundraiser, no pledge drive, no sermon every year in November to achieve the giving goals that we have. Rather, Mary simply thought, what can I give out of my life, out of love, back to my Savior? And out of the free will love of her heart, this is what came to mind. 
She wasn't trying to get Jesus' commendation or attention. You understand, if when she gave it, she was wanting Jesus to commend her. If she was wanting his approval, it would not have been an act of worship that got commended. The reason why it got commended was because it was simply out of love and adoration to the Savior, no strings attached. So it wasn't under compulsion. Not only that, but it wasn't inhibited by what others thought. Her love wasn't inhibited by what others thought. Mary didn't fear man. You understand, she did this. She didn't care what people were going to be thinking when she did it. She didn't think about how absurd it might be viewed or the, the disapproval of others. According to the text, she didn't even defend herself. So people are scoffing. The idea was uh, scolding her multiple times, multiple people, and, and she doesn't even defend herself. Would have been intimidating to be around the disciples. These were men of worthy esteem. You begin to think about it. The obedient love for Christ is not done for the approval of your parents. Or the approval of your pastor. Or the approval of your mentor. Or the approval of anyone else whose esteem you so desperately crave. It is for an audience of one. She doesn't care that she's being judged by a room full of influential men. It means little to her whether they approve or whether they don't. Because it's for Christ. We see that she isn't inhibited by what others thought. It wasn't under compulsion. Obviously, she counted the cost. This was something that she thought about. This was not a mere impulse. Right? No one carries around in their pocket a, a bottle of essential oil worth 50 G's that just happened to be hanging out in the purse. And in the moment, you're like, oh, I love Christ. And I'm just going to break it right here. And then I regret it later. She had the bottle there because she'd thought through what she wanted to offer to the Lord. She had to have planned it out. She'd been moved to do it. Probably prayed over it before she gave it. Next we see she didn't withhold any area. There was nothing off limits in her life. Man, how often we want to say, Lord, I'll give you these things here that are easier to give, but there's certain things that I'm just not willing to give up. Here, Lord, have all of it. And finally, she saw with faith that this was the better thing. She saw with faith that this was the better thing. See, Mary's commended for choosing the better thing. What that means is that when she went to bed that night, she had no regrets. She wasn't thinking, oh man, I, I broke that bottle. I can't get it back. And now I kind of wish I hadn't because that was my life savings account. Or what if I need that at some point in the future? As one person put it, this is a decision that surely she's not going to regret in 10 thousand years. See, in those eyes of faith, she understood what was better. And as she evaluated, she chose what was better. She had tasted of the grace and mercy of Christ. She knew she'd gone from being a slave of sin to being a slave of God. And she is consumed with worship. My friends, I want to encourage you in your service to the Lord in whatever it is. That you, you are pleasing to Christ when you offer to him worship with a right heart, just as she was. Matthew doesn't even put her name in the gospel. She gets like a, two paragraphs in the whole gospel record. 
She's like behind the scenes from so many other characters. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need to be on stage. You don't need to be married. You don't need a title. On paper, Mary's status is very low, and yet she's elevated by God and elevated and commended in his eyes because of her faith and love toward him. And so when you serve, let it be the Lord Christ whom you serve. Whatever it is that you do, wherever it is that you go, if you brew a pot of coffee, it's for Christ. If you do your work faithfully as an employee and you don't cut quarters or complain as unto Christ, if you love your family and don't respond in kind when they're not at their best, you do it out of love for Christ. When you write an offering check, it is to be out of love for Christ. When you offer a gentle correction, that it is for love for Christ. When you clean the building or make a meal or plant flowers or call someone in the body to encourage them, it is to be out of love for Jesus Christ. Mary understood the better thing. She gave what she had to worship Jesus. And Judas is watching the whole thing. He's watching that intimate moment. He's watching the commendation. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. Is what threw him over the edge. Verse 14, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. What happened? Judas is saying, man, I, I cannot handle this. I just lost out on this opportunity. And Jesus is commending it. And I am seething right now. And so he went to the chief priests and he said to them in verse 15, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Not what can I give to the Lord, but what can I get for him? Text says they paid him 30 pieces of silver. That was the price of a slave according to Exodus 21.32. Maybe the buying power of a Honda Civic. That's what you turn Jesus in for is your, your new Civic. The text says in verse 16, from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. He's an opportunistic, conniving scoundrel. Judas is on the other side of the equation. You see here, Mary is consumed with Christ and will give all of her expense for his sake. Judas is consumed with self and will use Christ for his own personal advantage. What happens to Judas in being consumed with the worship of money? Well, he thinks it'll bring satisfaction. He thinks it will stop the nagging and the angst and the frustration. He thinks that it will bring lasting relief. What's the result? Well, according to the next chapter of Matthew, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He tried to bring back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Judas, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, departed, and he went, and he hanged himself. See, Judas got the object of his worship. What he wanted more than anything, he got. And when he got it, he realized that wasn't actually going to provide what he needed. Judas isn't in hell right now because he betrayed Jesus. He's in hell because he never repented of his sin and trusted in Christ. He never loved the Savior. He never knew the love that Mary had. Mary, on the other hand, is, is committed. She made the, the top 10 highlights in the New Testament that real. She made it twice, two different occasions. Why? Not because she was morally superior. 
but because in humility she understood the love of Christ for her and loved him back deeply. My friends, if you don't love Jesus Christ, you don't see in your heart that there's a love for Christ, not under compulsion. If no one else was watching, if no one else knew, if you'd never get caught, if you'd never get discovered and found out, if you'd never lose any friendships or relationships or any standing, if you don't have love for Christ simply for who he is, you need to repent today and believe the gospel and be saved. To understand his love for you and coming to die in your place. That you might know him and love him not just in this life, but forever in eternity. If you're in Christ right now and your love has grown cold, then be encouraged by Mary's testimony to rekindle your love for the Savior. How do you do that? Go sit at his feet and learn. Go remind yourself of his character toward you and the work that he has done on your behalf. Remind yourself of your unworthiness and his faithfulness in spite of that. Ask God to reveal the love of Christ to you. Tell you what, all week reflecting on this passage has been such a blessing to my heart to be reminded to go back to out of all of the things that we could do for Christ, it's very simply the loving relationship with him that is to take preeminence over all of that. The songwriter says, My Redeemer's love grows sweeter as eternity draws near. I'll enjoy his love forever at his throne for endless years. My Redeemer's love will fill me on the day I see his face. I will love him back forever and forever sing his praise. Will you pray with me? Lord in heaven, thank you for pouring out the love of God upon us in Christ Jesus. Where Paul would write to the church at Rome and he would say that the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Lord, the picture that uh, it wasn't a stingy amount, it wasn't a couple of drops, it wasn't just a few ounces, but it was uh, lavishly poured to the point that it was overflowing from our hearts. Lord, I pray for any in the room who find an honesty before you, a dryness spiritually, a lack of love for the Savior. Father, that you would remind them of the joy of their salvation. Uh, that you would restore that, even the initial joy that comes from tasting of forgiveness and seeing your love for us. Father, I pray that you would get yourself much glory through us as your people. And uh, Lord, that this life would be uh, for us filled with great joy uh, to not be enslaved to many things, uh, but simply to be enslaved to you, O oh Lord. Uh, what, a, what a good and gracious master you are. So we love you now. We commend these things to you.